I'm joined again today by Robert Roland Smith. Hi, Robert. Hello, Mark. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too, my my friend, my collaborator, and becoming now my regular conversation partner um, in this series that we have on psychotherapy. And Robert, today I thought we might talk about another huge subject in the work of figures from Freud and Jung um, to, you know, it's become a sort of part of everyday parlance now, um, which is the notion of the unconscious. And maybe just to leap in, I, I once had a supervisor and whenever I said, or oh, I think in their unconscious or I think in the unconscious, they would more immediately leap in and say, you shouldn't say the or there, um, that trying to sort of point at the unconscious <laughs> Um, was already a sort of mistaken way to try and engage with it Um, because the supervisor's point was well maybe just as as a starter um, there isn't the unconscious there's just that of which we're not conscious it may be present active you know even more dynamic than we regard ourselves in our lives Um, but we're just unconscious of the fact um, so that that was a sort of a point that always stuck with me when trying to talk about this subject. Yeah, well, okay, let me pick up, um, pick that up and run with it because I, I like that a lot. You know, not the unconscious, but just unconsciousness, a bit like dark matter or something. You 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 might refer to it as. Although I think it's um, maybe for our viewers and listeners, it might be worth just um, helping a bit with a definition that is the unconscious just maybe briefly i'll say what freud's definition is in his early work anyway because in fact later on as you know he does develop a sort of much more um mysterious notion really of what the unconscious is and he talks about it at the group level and the instinctual level and so on so it becomes more complicated but shall I say something about the kind of classical freudian definition yeah no it's good to it's good to have a starter because then at least we can you know make progress from somewhere yeah yeah, okay. So um I think the first point to say is that for Freud there is the unconscious and it arises developmentally. So it's the result of other things. So if we think of the development of infants um very simply, we are born and pretty much from the moment we're born we have what Freud calls an ich, you know, an ego. But all that really is, is just giving a name to a wishing function, because all that little infants want is just to be fed or to be held or to be have their nappy changed or whatever it might be. So it's it's just basic wishing. And that's what Freud calls the, the ich, the I, or the ego as it gets translated. And that's all well and good uh, until pretty early on, actually, in human development, the infant then realises there's uh, they're not always going to get what they want, to quote a famous Rolling Stones song. There are siblings who might want, who might get in the way. So if, if the infant wants to be fed by the mother's breast, for example, they might realise there's a sibling who wants to get there first, or, you know, dad might get in the way. So uh, they, they have this sense quite early on that there's an ego, but then there's this thing which cuts across it and says, no, you can't always have it, which is the no function. And that creates the superego, which moderates desire and wanting. So now we have two things in the picture. First ego, then superego. A kind of, yes, I want it. No, you can't have it, or you'll have to wait. And then for Freud, at least, the unconscious is the result of the clash between these two things. The unconscious is the repository of all the egoic wishes that aren't met. So it's... um, it's uh, yes, 
the repository of frustrated desire, I suppose, is a you know one way of just describing it. And excuse me, in early Freud, that there is the unconscious; it lives somewhere inside the psyche. Um, probably, maybe on another episode, we'll talk about the difference between psyche and mind, or psyche and brain. But that's a that's a different subject. Actually, just just to leap in there, I mean, yeah. one one idea which I think um, is helpful from this um, earlier idea of Freud is because I think he he felt it could live in the body. Um, and I think he even says the first ich, the first ego is the body ego. Um, and, and that's actually, you know, as a sort of, um, as a model, it's actually quite a helpful notion because, you know, often very early or difficult feelings are held in the body. And so you can get into notions like psychosomatic or using the body in therapy and, you know, this, this sort of, these sort of very primitive and basic things. Um, yeah, so the, the, I, the, this, you know, as as with all this stuff, actually, this is all sort of models and approaching that which sort of exceeds the capacity to understand it. Um, so it, there's, there's still use in this early Freudian description. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if you position Freud in the history of ideas, which is a rather kind of grandiose thing to say, perhaps, but it's quite remarkable, although there are antecedents for the notion of the unconscious. So, you know, Freud didn't invent or discover the unconscious, although his formulation was, was original. Um, when you put it in the history of ideas, it is still pretty surprising because, I mean, you're a philosopher, Mark, uh, you know, I am. We know that the entire history of philosophy is about consciousness, really, or reason, or becoming more awake. And so the, even the idea that there's an unconscious is sort of a bit scandalous. It's sort of, it's a bit like the Victorian, the equivalent in Victorian life of admitting people have a sex life. You know, there's stuff that goes on, you know, in the bedroom or in the attic or below decks, you know, which uh, hadn't really hitherto been spoken about or named or cited. And yet suddenly this thing is being pointed at by Freud as if to say, well, the history of philosophy and ideas tells us we're rational scientific agents, but actually we're not. So I think for me, you know, worth pointing out just how revolutionary that is, just as a thought, you know, in the 19th century. Maybe the other equivalent would have been evolution, you know, a massive jolt to some of the assumptions uh, of life, you know, in the mid-late 19th century. I, I'm going to I want to sort of get ahead of ourselves, but... Um... As you say that, I'm wondering whether, you know, as a moment in history when this idea does come about, whether it's as, as much a comment on the moment in history as it as if it were, you know, as much as a sort of discovery. Um, and and maybe the notion of the unconscious comes about then because of a kind of disenchantment that's taken place. Um, you know, whereas before human beings would have experienced forces of which they weren't conscious coming from gods or from place. Um, you know, the influence of ancestors, um, rather than being the production of repressed material inside their own psyche or held in their own body. Um, and so perhaps, you know, a notion of the unconscious can only come about when, well, after Freud, uh, Nietzsche put it, um, you mentioned Darwin and Freud, so might as well bring in Nietzsche as well, the other, th the three great sceptics, you know, after the death of God. Um, that when the world dies and becomes, well, dark matter, as the physicist means it at least, um, then you've got to come up with a different theory as to how we're influenced by that which we're not, well, certainly not in control of, but not even aware of. And so well, the Mark, I'm going to bring I'm gonna, I'm gonna, into being. 
I'm going to meet your stakes and raise them even further. Okay, good, good. Come yeah. on, it's incredibly, normally we don't do this, but on this very grand tableau of history, because, okay, to Darwin and Freud and Nietzsche, I'll add Marx, because in the 19th century, you know, the other huge discovery of the, uh, you know, hitherto repressed is of the worker, you know, the working class. The fact that, uh, you know, labour is produced by these forces that are often you know, not taken account of. So we've got, you know, three kind of complete Copernican jolts to our sense of what it is to be human there, haven't we? We've got, yeah, the dark matter in the absence of God. <laughs> we've got Freud in the unconscious. We've got Marx in the working class. You know, suddenly all these veils are being torn apart. Or, or are they veils? You know, was Nietzsche actually right that it's it springs from the death of something? So it's not so much... It is a jolt. I have no doubt about that. But it's not like a Copernican discovery, Copernican discovery. It's more like the jolt of a terrible loss, um, which is this loss of a sense that our life is born of other lives or other life, yeah. um, which, you know, in traditional Christian um, worldview would, of course, be called gods, called the divine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's quite a ferment, isn't it, that all this is coming out of? You know, maybe that Sorry. Well, then, so maybe that's, you know, why um, Freud can't quite put the death of God down and, you know, keeps returning to it. You know, he was an avowed atheist. There's no doubt about that. Um, but there's something about the question of God. And he comes up with his own various accounts, you know, imaginative or factual, um, you know, depending on how you read him um, to account for the the idea of the divine in the psyche. He certainly doesn't isn't trying to prove the existence of God um, in a you know more straightforward sense, philosophical sense, but to account for this um, felt reality, at least in the psyche, in the unconscious. Well, exactly. Yeah, you can get rid of God, but you can't get rid of the absolute power of the Father, you know, as incorporated or as felt. It reminds me, actually, that, uh, you know, Jacques Lacan, who we mentioned, I think, last time, perhaps, has this punning French phrase, Le nom du père, the name of the father, which is obviously a sort of um, sort of Catholic reference, but le nom in French also sounds as the not or the no of the father, as well as the name of the father, which corresponds to this idea of the superego. You know, the father is the one who says no, whereas mum, mummy says yes, daddy says no, kind of thing. Um, well, should we should, should we sort of bring in um, Jung as well? Yeah, go for at this it. Point. So, because Jung. Um, has a different idea of what's unconscious um, from Freud. For Jung, there can be repressed personal material, um, that which is either taboo or was denied, um, caused suffering or pain in some way. Um, but um, that's only the beginning of the story because he actually, because he was a great Darwinist, he also had an idea of evolution that we receive. We're not sort of tabula rasa, um, the more Lockean approach perhaps of Freud, um, just sort of impressed upon by what happens to us, to us in our own lives. Um, but that we, much as we, I don't know, receive um, five fingers on each hand, because at one point some deep ancestor, the fish, had five sets of bones in its fin. Um, so too our psyches are the evolutionary inheritors um, of the deep past. Um, and so there's such a thing as what he called the collective unconscious. And the collective unconscious is not just that which happened before but because it's inherited not just by us but by everything else around us too it's alive and active um even more broadly and so you get a sort of sense of the opening up 
of what's unconscious, the unconscious. I mean, I think, you know, Jung still talked about the unconscious, actually, didn't he? Mm. Um, but um, you get a, a much bigger sort of opening up of it once more. Um, and a lot of Jung's efforts were trying to see evidence for this. Um, so trying to show how someone might have a dream with details in it that they pos- couldn't possibly have known about before the dream and yet resonated with imagery you might find in alchemical material, for example, um, to show that, or in ancient myth, um, to show that um, we're the receivers um, of what is unconsciously acting upon us um, that speaks the, lam- the language of symbol and metaphor. That's a very, very nice point, Mark, to be reminded of that Darwin connection, evolutionary connection, because the idea of a shared unconscious isn't just that it's shared in the now or we happen to all somehow have access to some um, invisible pool or reservoir of imagery, but it's shared in the sense of a shared ancestry. You know, it's built up over kind of deep time. And the point about archetypes, for example, is they're not you know, made up on the moment, you know, there's no such thing really as a modern archetype. It's almost a contradiction in terms. You know, an archetype is is ancient and it's ancient and has accrued those sediments and that pattern to it because of generations and generations of reinforcement of of what those archetypes are. So they've they've established patterns over, you know, generations, even millennia perhaps, that then are not only the accumulation of experience that then gets codified as symbol or archetype, but then in turn have a determining effect on us because whether we dream them or ex- access those archetypes in other ways, you know, and they could be very basic archetypes like self and shadow or more sophisticated ones that are like king or something, they in turn then have a determining effect on us and on society and on our behaviour and how we fall into different, not just individual identities but into different roles in society for example so the ancestry point i think is a critical one and i hadn't thought about that for a long time so yeah i mean i think um, i'm right in saying that jung uh, used the notion of archetype to account for a lot of behavior amongst creatures in the natural world too you know so the bird that's never taught how to build a nest and yet does one um or the i don't know the, the caterpillar that turns into a pupa and suddenly knows how to hang from the bottom of a leaf you know, something it had never done before. Um, you know, a lot of um, the natural world, I guess it would, would be called instinct, um, but maybe the word instinct being asked to do rather a lot more work um, than it can to account for these very, very sophisticated behaviours um, that, as it were, in the life of the individual creature spring as if out of nowhere. But of course, Jung would say yeah. they precisely don't. Well, actually, it's probably on the word instinct that, Freud and Jung meet one another again because they had a very famous falling out partly over the notion of the collective unconscious actually because for Freud it was much more an individual thing for Jung a much more collective thing but in his later work you know in the 1930s certainly and but before that too Freud starts to use the language of instinct and particularly species instinct and the, you know he talks about phylogenetic instincts and so on as if there is a collective will, for example, the death wish. I mean, it's the most, it's very kind of, it's become popularized a notion now. But, you know, he's writing in the, you know, with the prospect of a war coming around, you know, he leaves Vienna in the 30s with the rise of the Nazis and so on. And he's really thinking about what at the level of civilization are these mass unconscious instincts, although he never talks about the collective unconscious. They are 
they are mass instincts. And he talks about, you know, mass psychology. It gets translated as group psychology, but things which are held by the collective. And, you know, it's led to all sorts of work on, for example, panic in social groups. Now, why, you know, what sets off a panic? What is that contagion where no individual wants it, but the group as a whole begins to act in a way or a mob? Uh, you know, begins a lynching or even mass movements in not just right, but also left wing, you know, politics. There's something about group instinct at an unconscious level, which overtakes kind of conscious, rational, individual agency. Yeah, well, look, thanks for that, because I'd never thought of that before, actually, that there is a, a notion of the collective unconscious in Freud um, with that idea of instinct. And also, I mean, you know, it's very helpful to hear that it's, it's mass rather than group behavior that he's talking about um because that as often with freud actually you do have to watch the translations don't you You do yes because it's it's math the word is mass and psychology is that right i can't apologies to the viewers if i've misremembered that but i'm pretty sure it's mass rather than group but anyway yeah yeah maybe we'll be corrected in the comments so look, the, maybe to, to take things um another step in a you know another direct well a related direction i hope um which came to mind as you were speaking there um um, I suppose a more positive use of the word unconscious would be when people sort of turn to the unconscious or um, somehow try to conjure or invoke it in order to get, you know, new ideas or maybe even to have a vision. Um, you know, the writer of novels will often say that the characters start to write themselves, which I guess you could try and account for as if it's coming from their unconscious. Um, and, you know, sometimes people will say that um, to, in order to, to get a good idea, a new idea, to try and foster a different turning in life, um, you need to turn to that which we're not conscious of now, uh, maybe have forgotten or it's sort of hidden on the other side of the shadow um, in order to um, get a different steer, a, a different possibility forming, manifesting um, for us. Um, and. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm quite, I'm intrigued by that notion. But again, um, I do wonder whether it's still a bit of a post-Nietzschean flatland idea and the unconscious is being made to do work that before would have been called inspiration, um, it being inspired by intelligence, say, that is broader and wider than our own intelligence and yet is part of our intelligence. Um, or, you know, another word in this sort of domain would be the imagination um and how mm. we're very inclined a bit like the unconscious to regard the imagination now as our sort of our own perhaps astonishing or remarkable capacity but nonetheless sort of somehow springing from our individual psyche um whereas i think um there's an, another account that would be in the romantics and although i think the word imagination itself is relatively recent there would be an older sense that actually the imagination is a kind of participation in a wider creativity. Um, it's not our own creativity that catches us by surprise um, or luckily adds a bit of colour to life, um, but is a connection um, with a wider field um, that exists, is there, is active, um, but of which we're often unconscious. Now, you can sort of nudge that in a religious direction, which I'd be inclined to do, talk about the divine, um, or just try and keep it, um, more naturalistically understood, but it's still a, an effort to return to a sort of enchantment of the world 
um, that there's, you know, more dreamt of in your philosophy. Mm. I want to come back to the notion of field, but just on your connection between um, the unconscious and the imagination as sitting in some kind of um, accessible but out of reach reservoir, if you like, that's there for us all, um, but is not easily accessed always. And I want to add to that, because you mentioned sort of creativity in that as well, whether one of the things that that marks out acts of creativity and creators is that they, there is a kind of courage or fearlessness in going into the unconscious or the imaginary material um, that would normally be censored or repressed or corrected or forbidden, you know, uh, when brought out into ordinary into ordinary life. And we can think of the, the history of artists, you know, so many of them were vilified, actually, when their work was at first shown because it seemed to contravene social norms. You know, as if they they were literally fishing out of the depths those elements, those imagined but unallowed, unconscious, disallowed elements that the society knew were there, but only had its creators and artists to express because they their mechanisms of self-censorship just weren't as strong as they are for, for most of us because we spent a lot of our time self-censoring. Um, mm. Yes, yeah, so yeah, so for me, there's that connection too between imagination and the unconscious is that which we don't have permission to bring to the surface. Yeah, and um, and pops up in dreams or exactly in, um, Freudian slips or um, sort of strange fantasies that we have during the day. Yeah, um, and of course, you know, in psychotherapy, that's one way which you work with what's unconscious, um, that which happens unexpectedly or a dream. I mean, you know, many psychotherapists certainly in the areas that I work who are very open to this kind of idea um, would even want to say that the dream is the only objective material that you can have in a psychotherapeutic session precise session that was was that was that a Freudian slip I don't think so quite um, <laughs> precisely because um, uh, you know it's not under the control of the ego um, that it's sprung up from some other place um, now it may be quite tricky to know what to make of it um, but nonetheless being on the lookout for that kind of thing is is fundamental to real transformation rather than just trying to keep going in the ways that you know already yeah and obviously a strong connection between dreams and imagination and particularly in the literary tradition I was thinking of what for me is one of the kind of founding texts of certainly English literature which is Piers Plowman I don't know if you ever read that but no I don't, about, I don't know um, that yeah William Langland uh, wrote this um, poem it's a medieval text and it's about a wanderer who basically falls asleep you know on this hillside in a kind of pastoral scene and then dreams dreams the poem so the that connection between dreaming and imagination I think is is very strong and it's because it's somehow unconscious in some way you know and the mm. imagination is is the is the engine of that in some way um mm. that's very fascinating I, yeah. um you know, I'm working on William Blake, and, yeah. and Blake will say that some of his um, poems were dictated to him by, yeah. say, a, one, one of them, he says, is dictated to him by a fairy. Mm. Um, he sort of was walking through the woods one day and, and saw a fairy singing a song on a leaf. Um, and 
whatever else you make of that, certainly the point about seeing a fairy is to be in a kind of in-between zone yeah. um, where what's more than you consciously might know can start to be revealed to you. Yeah. So, I wonder, just in parenthesis, I wonder if there is some link between Blake and Langland, whether Blake ever read uh, Piers Plowman. But, but anyway. Um, yeah, I've, I've never so far as, as I've never heard anyone make the link. But that's, yeah, maybe. You know, but that's not. It's only because the evidence doesn't survive. Yeah. Um, can I come back to this notion of field because you touched on it and we we mentioned it briefly before we we started recording because it's a much misunderstood term, or at least it's thrown around and seems very mysterious, but it seems to belong with that family of terms like the unconscious and, you know, um, hidden knowledge and the imagination and all these, all these things, what could we call them as kind of repositories of other forms of knowing or something like that. So just, just to stop on that briefly, because I think the way I use the field anyway, is that that is a form of, collective unconscious knowledge basically so it's not just uh that of which we're collectively unaware but it is something that contains knowledge and insight for us so you and i are both um familiar with this practice systemic constellations and systemic constellations depends on material that is brought forward from the field which is I keep using the word repository. It's not really right because that suggests some with something topographic, and I don't think it's in a place. I think it's diffuse, dispersed, or intangible, or whatever. But what it suggests is, in a way, all of knowledge is available to us, not just archetypes, which was uh, Jung's sort of take on it. I don't think he would have disagreed with the notion of the field, but that wasn't his 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 focus that somehow there is available to us all, you know, all of human knowledge in some way that can be accessed, partly because, as you're saying, there is some ancestral connection which links us back to other people. It's not through DNA. Yes, it's through the body, but the channel isn't primarily a somatic one. We don't know exactly what it is. Um, but all of us, you you put a representative in a constellation. I, you know, if I put you in, Mark, as a representative for my grandfather who you never met i barely ever met you would immediately be able to you know you'd become active with him in some way we attribute that to the field giving of itself you know the field being a bit like dark energy or dark matter something whose presence we can never empirically observe but which we kind of have to infer or posit in order to explain the phenomena that we can observe, um, which is a bit like how symptoms work in, in Freud. You know, we we posit the unconscious because we have Freudian slips. You know, Freud, I don't think at any point said, you know, the, the unconscious is there or like those, is it phrenology where you have areas mm -hmm. of the brain? I don't think he ever said, you know, the unconscious is that bit above the ear at the back, you know. Um, so anyway, the field, I think, is part of this uh, conversation, um, even if much misunderstood. Yeah, I mean, just to just to stress um, the the strength of making that inference. Um, yeah, that, you know, it is very remarkable what reveals itself when you represent someone in um, a constellation. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned you know representing someone's father. I remember doing that once and immediately felt quite an intense pressure in my chest. And of course, it turned out 
well, I don't know why I said of course, but it turned out that the actual father had died of a heart attack. Yeah. Um, now, I, I have no idea um, quite how that... Um, well, I mean, I was going to say I have no idea how that works, but I suppose I, I, I do in the sense that you, you posit that you do step into a field and the the form of the therapy is such that you are able to sort of step at least to one side of your normal, more egoic kind of concerns. Um, and actually partly by using the body, you know, my experience of it is it's a very embodied experience. You sort of drop down, might be the expression that's used. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, as you're saying, you know, instantly um is there's information available that you receive sort of back through the body often yeah you know, the sense of where you want to turn or where you want to be um so it, it is very powerful and um you know it quite often yields you know veridical information that you can sort of test either by someone who's there or finding out later mm. yes it makes me wonder again maybe this is a slightly parenthetical thing about this distinction between unconscious and subconscious because you know in informal conversations people will often say subconscious you know or unconscious interchangeably of course i'm a pedant so i always insist on the difference between the two for me the unconscious is that you know as defined by freud or jung or what have you but i wonder actually in the case of the field maybe subconscious is actually a bit closer to it in some ways because it's so immediate it's as if it's just beneath the surface somehow in a in a strange way although it's so profound it seems like it's more readily accessible strangely than our own individual unconscious or even the collective unconscious of Jung's like as you say immediately you're put in to represent somebody's father and it and it's there you know as if the the flimsiest film you know was separating us from all all the other characters ancestrally speaking that we've been connected to um and not just in the human race but in you know all animals on the planet essentially Uh, yeah no i like that actually sometimes when people use subconscious i feel that they're a bit nervous of full strength unconsciousness (laughs) yeah and so they just want to you know hold back a bit but i do like the idea that there's that which is maybe just below the surface but actually is sort of beating up from underneath the waves of our yeah. awareness and um, whereas there is a deep unconscious sort of at the at the floor of the ocean um which yeah. is connected to us somehow but only um in you know very sort of labyrinthine ways yeah exactly yeah. through lots of displacement because that's the other thing and freud insists on this you know that the dream is always you know what he calls the dream work uh, is the is the work of the mind to take unconscious material and turn it into a dream which is both condensed and displaced, as he said. It's both metaphorical and metonymic. You know, so it is exactly, you know, because you use the word labyrinthine there. The point about a dream is that it's cryptic. You know, a point about constellation, it's not cryptic at all. It's the opposite. You know, it's it's what people say about their lives that is cryptic. The representations from the field are actually extraordinarily transparent and straightforward, actually. So it's, it's interesting there's a kind of inversion going on there. Well, maybe to throw in another thought on that, um, um, uncrypting even further was, uh, um, I remember reading in Owen Barfield once, this um, sort of philologist, philosopher, friend of Lewis and Tolkien, who is so influential on me. Um, And he he, he was a bit sort of uh, sniffy about Jung. I think partly because Barfield's 
sort of guru um, sage was Rudolf Steiner. And Steiner and Jung were near contemporaries. And um, but even though, you know, both speaking in living, working in Germanic worlds, um, uh, you know, didn't really get on, I don't think they did have some correspondence. But um, at, at one point, I think, um, you know, Jung was sniffy about Steiner because Steiner claimed to be able to access this Akashic record, um, which perhaps is another way of putting this field that we all have access to. Um, and Jung remarked that how could Steiner read the Akashic field when he couldn't even read ancient Egyptian? Um, which <laughs> you know, Jung, Jung, of course, you know, had books and books of hieroglyphs and was deep yeah. into all that. Um, but then um, Barfield at once makes this point and he says, look, what we really need is not um, notions of the collective unconscious, but collective conscious um and um which he meant new ways of relating to that which exists maybe just subconsciously in the field that which is just beneath um um the veil and um which would be no doubt in new ways but um developing new forms of maybe religiosity devotion and worship or you know, accessing synchronicities, um, new kinds of divination, even, um, given that they're the old ways that people lived with what we now call the unconscious, subconscious mm -hmm. in the past. Um, but Barfield wasn't just suggesting sort of nostalgically dragging them back into the present day um, as if it's some kind of magic, but using that um, past to try and provoke us almost into how working out ways to relate to um, all this activity. And mm. I think for Barfield, psychotherapy was, you know, a sort of good effort, maybe even a nece necessary effort. But I think because he suspected it of psychologizing um, mm. rather than really claiming sort of ground in an actual ontology um, of reality, the inside of the whole world, as Barfield put it, um, he could could be a bit sniffy about it. Um, you know, inheriting that a little bit from the Steiner-Jung interchanges as well. It's interesting you use the word psychologizing because um, when I was teaching literature in Oxford in the 1990s to students, I was into literary theory, and particularly the kind of militant end, I suppose, the, you know, the really hard stuff, Paul Demand and Derrida and so on. And there was a big resistance to psychologizing literature. You know, you mustn't talk about the biography of the author. You know, you mustn't explain texts through their psychology and so on. And in fact, you know, one of the issues in psychoanalysis and particularly the metaphor of the unconscious is that it assumes depth and profundity. And, you know, your metaphor of the ocean beneath the waves and low down on the ocean floor does suggest a kind of vertical in some way. Um, even the collective unconscious, I sort of picture as something above us or maybe beneath us, but there's a sort of vertical line structurally to all of this. And the reason I'm thinking about it is, you know, I read a book, astonishing book, uh, last year called The Mind is Flat, that says actually this, these metaphors of depth and so on are not really that accurate and and really life is much more like a play that we improvise all the time like characters that we respond to situations with the appropriate material it's a bit like what wittgenstein says in the language game you know we are fairly pragmatic in terms of assembling meaning on the spot for the working play that we're currently enacting like you and i we know each other well and we know we have 
personalities that are consistent over time, more or less. And from that, we, you know, we infer sort of depth. You know, I sort of see a depth to you, Mark. But in a certain sense, you know, if we're, we're being a bit more cynical, I guess, about it, maybe that's not true. All we ever really see is a kind of fairly familiar responding to each other in the moment and adjusting and mirroring and so on, which creates the illusion of depth, but in a sense is a much more pragmatic form of communication that just expedites, you know, a, a conversation, essentially. Yeah, well, I mean, something springs up from within me that wants to push back <laughs> yeah, against <the> that. <laughs> because I've no doubt that, that that does happen. But, um, uh, I mean, two reasons, really. One is that... Um, when you, I feel that when you meet people who really are sort of dancing on the surface um, because they're terrified of sinking, um, what happens is is actually rather dreary. Um, it, it's repetitive. It's cyclical. Um, mm. um, you know, it might be very charged because of terror and anxiety, um, but it doesn't really go anywhere. And and part of the struggle with working with people who are caught in that kind of flatland is um how just to sort of keep at it because it's so interminable um and i so i feel um to sort of move to put it more slightly philosophically that if um all we did do was sort of play on the surface and adapt um we'd soon sort of run out of interest in life and maybe that's part of the crisis of meaning today now i say that mm. um but that you know that i think there is something that is right about the old notion, say that inspiration is literally to be breathed into by a God mm. um, and that a more empirical reason for putting that is simply that, well, actually William Blake says this, you know, he says, if it weren't for the poetic and prophetic character, by which he means the people that are open to more um, and all we had was the experimental and the philosophic, as he puts it, um, we very quickly end up, um, just repeating the same dull round and be caught in what he calls the ratio. Um, yeah, so I, I uh, there's something it's you know truth be known quite strong in me that pushes back against that. Actually. No, I can feel it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can feel the depth. Maybe can I just touch on this? Maybe as a last subject, but I wanted to just talk about and you're a you know a, a practitioner about the clinical manifestation of the unconscious or or not, and you know the degree to which you're tempted to sort of push people in like you know come on give me something a bit more unconscious here or whether you can tell when material is a bit more as it were brought up freshly dripping from the unconscious from the bottom of that pond you know with the kind of uh, the weeds around it or or whether it's really just an art of very fine discrimination it's just not like that at all i think it's actually it's quite straightforward when, once you get the sense of it and um two two big indicators one is um the emotional charge in the room and um when something feels emotionally alive you know that you're on the interface of you know what's conscious and what's subconscious or unconscious mm -hmm. um and then relatedly because when something's emotionally charged um it's interesting and it grips you time also kind of disappears from the room mm -hmm. um and so another way of putting it is that if you know, a session is sort of plodding along and you'll find yourself looking at the clock a bit and so on. You know that um, you need to try and get to something a bit deeper, to use the metaphor. Um, mm. And then, you know, when that starts to show itself, that which was more unconscious before, then you find that um, the charge goes up and um, time disappears. Um, so those are very good sort of 
barometers um, of the kind of material that you're working yeah. with. That's interesting. It reminds me of that book of kissing, tickling and being bored, you know, the Adam Phillips book, where, in, if I remember it rightly, he basically says, you should read boredom as a defence. Um, so when people are boring you, it's because they're deliberately trying to keep you off the trail. You know, they don't want you to see bits of themselves. They're yeah. trying to put you to sleep, basically, which they you know, which they often do. No, well, actually, um, without being too <laughs> confessional, um, it was when I had my sort of big analysis, it was one of the things which my long-suffering therapist one day said to me um, was, you know, you're trying to put me to sleep. Um, and I I was shocked and wow. somewhat affronted by yeah. this. I thought I was talking about rather interesting stuff. <laughs> but <laughs> well, no, it was all coming from you. the wrong level. And she was precisely right. Right. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that must, that's quite an intervention on their part. That's quite a strong, uh, strong intervent interpretation, yeah, no, as we say. It took yeah. me several weeks to get over it. <laughs> and still, it's still there, Mark, I can tell, somewhere in the depths. I remember it well now, yes. Yeah. Hey, look, that, that's really fascinating. A, a lot of um, things that link to this notion of unconsciousness, maybe that's why it's become so pregnant in our culture. But mm. I do, I suppose... Um, you know, now we've talked around it, but I kind I do have this sense that maybe it's a word that when we stop using it, it would have served its purpose um, because we won't have to think that it's this sort of strange, esoteric, hidden um, sort of dynamic in life that many people would even dismiss and say it's ridiculous um, because we'll have become um, maybe not more conscious of, of what's going on, but more deliberate and intentional in our ways of negotiating that which is more than us mm, that's very nice i like that a lot well it's a pleasure talking to you mark you haven't sent me to sleep on the contrary i feel quite <laughs> stimulated makes a change obviously uh it's nice to well, see you we'll thanks very much indeed next. yeah nice Cheers, to see bye. you bye bye